Hey, listeners, you are about to hear the fifth and final part of our suite of episodes on foundation. Final parts of things are normally culminative and climactic, and I sure hope that's the case for the content of the episode and our discussions. But in terms of the audio, I can't say that it's going to be pristine. I made a recording mistake on my end, and so I kind of sound like I'm talking out of a tin can. I've processed it as much as I could, but there's only so much you can do in this kind of situation. But Jacob and Stephanie sound fantastic, and I hope you can bear with the irregularity of my own voice as you listen. Quick preview, this was actually a two-episode recording session that we did, and so both this and the next episode are going to have it as a problem. So my apologies, and I hope you are able to find value in the episode despite my goof. Thanks. On this episode, we finish our discussion on Foundation with a look at Part 5, The Merchant Princess. What is the Foundation becoming in the many years since it was founded? Does it look like we expected? And do we like what we see? This is Galaxy, a podcast about the sci-fi literary universe of Isaac Asimov. Welcome to Galaxy. I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. This is a podcast where we discuss and go through all of the sci-fi novels and stories of Isaac Asimov, one of the greatest sci-fi authors of all time. I'm a relatively experienced reader of Asimov's works. Jacob and Stephanie are newcomers, and together we go through and discuss themes and the meanings and the continuing relevance for these stories. How are you today, Jacob and Stephanie? I'm having a good day, you know. It's been kind of cold lately. Good time to sit in and read. I'm always amazed at the ability of the kids in our little neighborhood to make snow people out of, like, no right, yeah, snow. especially when they're so little. Yes. Oh my, yeah, for, for our listeners, oh my goodness. I think we've had an inch on the ground, and I've seen so many snowmen just made out of pure just tenacity. giant snowmen. There was one that was, like, Six-ish foot in front of a door, right? I wouldn't say it was six feet. I would say it was probably like three, but it was a substantial snowman. Especially with an I'll, inch of I'll snow. I'll take you to see it you know, later. I think if we yes, had our please. way, we could make a whole line of snowmen, each of them kind of modeled after one of the heroes that's in Foundation. So we could have like a Harry <laughs> Selden snowman in a wheelchair and a Salvor Hardin snowman. Um, I don't know what he would look like. With the light bulb. And a big old... He would have Culver a light bulb. Mallow, um, gigantic snowman, this larger-than-life character. And uh, I talk about Hober Mallow because we're talking about Part 5 of Foundation today, which is entitled The Merchant Princes. Uh, first impressions on The Merchant Ooh. Princes? Merchant Princes. Um, my first impressions were, this is this is a longer section. I, kinda, I was able to, to see where the length was helpful. Um, I just wasn't prepared for it, honestly. Yeah, I think my first impression was, again, that kind of, you know, Asimov, at some point you have to stop vague posting and tell me what you're getting toward. Mm, right. So it felt like it felt like the setup for a novel. It didn't feel like, you know, an ending, which I think is where the short story fix up thing comes in. For but. sure. It definitely has a much different feel than just about every other part that we've read and i know that i already said that about the last part it was also quite distinct in its character but this one is distinct in its own ways and so we are going to orient you listener to our discussion today by having a synopsis of part five if you haven't read the book in a long time we do this to kind of catch you up and if you haven't even read it yet but you just want to hear our discussion we offer this as a way to kind of prepare the ground and uh, make it so that you're not missing out on something that we're talking about. So here we go with a synopsis. Hober Mallow is a master trader and native of Smyrna, one of the former Four Kingdoms. In the decades since Salvor Hardin solved the Anacreonian crisis, the kingdoms, through religious and economic forces, slowly but surely came under the control of the Foundation. At the same time, 
as was demonstrated by the affair with Ascone several decades earlier, the ability to bring more worlds under Foundation control through religious forces has highly diminished. New dangers are also emerging. Several Foundation ships have recently been lost, very suddenly, in the region of the Republic of Corel. If they were destroyed, it could only be from an enemy holding advanced nucleic energy. Does Corel possess it? Or is there a traitor within Foundation territory? This is why Hober Mallow is approached by Jorain Sutt, secretary to the mayor, who wants him to find out who this enemy is. He is to take his ship and crew to Corel and investigate their abilities, while of course operating as a traitor. Sutt, however, has hidden motives. Over several decades, the foreign-born and secularly educated traitors have become increasingly powerful, and the priesthood has dwindled in its influence. Sutt believes that the system established by Salvor Hardin must be preserved, and that the traitors must be brought under control. And so, Sutt conspires with Publis Manlio, the Foundation High Priest, intending to involve Mallow in a situation that will ultimately cause traitors to lose favor in the eyes of the Foundation's populace. Mallow takes along James Twer, an older traitor whom he has known for a brief time, and Mallow's ship, the Far Star, embarks for Corel. A full week after they have arrived at Spaceport, and without any response as to whether Mallow can meet with Corel's Commodore, a disheveled and confused Foundation priest arrives outside the ship, seeking sanctuary. This is highly unexpected, as Corel is closed to any religious activities of the Foundation. Mallow's men sympathetically grant him unauthorized access to the ship, for which Mallow disciplines them. Soon after, a large mob gathers outside the Far Star, demanding that the priest be handed over to them. Twer strongly objects, but Mallow, now both highly suspicious and livid concerning the conduct on board his ship, agrees to release the priest to the mob. Soon after, a message arrives from the Commodore, granting Mallow an audience. Mallow assures the Commodore that he is only interested in trade and that the religion of the Foundation means nothing to him. And after showing the Commodore some of the Foundation's amazing technology and suggesting the economic prosperity that could come to Corel through it, the Commodore agrees to allow Mallow access to one of Corel's manufacturing facilities for a demonstration. He shows off more technology, which could truly revolutionize Corel's industries. But while he wows the Commodore and his officials, Mallow is on the lookout for signs of atomic technology. His attention focuses on the nearby guards, in whose holsters are blasters which bear the old imperial emblem. It dawns on Mallow that remnants of the Empire are attempting to branch back out into the periphery. Mallow next heads alone and covertly to the territory of Suena, a region further inward from the periphery that has seen near-constant civil war, instability, and death for several decades as the Empire has lost its hold. With the help of an old man whom Mallow meets, he learns that Suena's powerful Imperial Viceroy has aspirations of imperial rule, and that he has given a daughter in marriage to a periphery nobleman, in actuality, the Commodora, who is married to the Commodore of Corel. He also learns that Suena has nuclear power, and that power is run by the Techmen, a specialized hereditary caste of mechanics who maintain and fiercely guard the power plants. With the help of the old man's forged passport, Mallow enters a nearby city, and with the help of his fancy Foundation gadgets, manages to bribe a tech man into seeing some of Suena's power facilities. Upon closely questioning the increasingly uncomfortable tech man, it becomes clear to Mallow that while Suena has nuclear power, it is only run on the most basic of knowledge necessary to maintain the machines, and that true knowledge of how nuclear power works has long since been lost in this region. Cut suddenly to some six months later, Hober Mallow is now quite wealthy back on Terminus, having made a killer trade deal with Corel. He's building factories, and he has his eye on a Terminus city council seat. But Jerain Sutt decides to move against Mallow now, using several strategies. He argues that Mallow did not spread the Foundation's religion in his trade deals. Mallow counters that the system is outdated. It is no longer convincing and actually hinders trade. 
Sut offers wealth and power, but Mallow already has that. Sut then threatens to put Mallow on trial concerning the death of a Foundation priest on Corel. Mallow does not budge, and he is brought up on charges. At his trial, Mallow brilliantly defends and exonerates himself. He shares his conviction that James Twer is not truly a traitor, but a Foundation clergyman in the pay of Sut, since he does not know what a Selden crisis is. He also reveals holographic footage of the encounter with the priest on Corel on his ship, something of which Twer was unaware. Since the recorder bathed the ship's interior with ultraviolet light, a certain moment on the recording playback shows an otherwise invisible tattoo on the priest's wrist, IDing him as part of the Corellian secret police. There never was any priest. The whole affair was staged. Mallow is hailed as a hero by the masses for evading the trap and circumventing an armed conflict. In the immediate aftermath of the trial and state of mob fervor, Mallow takes bold steps while the time is ripe. He is convinced that another Selden crisis is approaching, involving the remnants of the Empire and the Republic of Corel, whom those remnants have been arming. And so, with popular support, he moves to have Jorain Sutt and Publius Manlio the High Priest arrested and detained until he can win the upcoming mayoral election. He succeeds, and as mayor, his solution to the crisis is unique. War with Corel does break out, but the Foundation will not fight. Instead, it is economic forces that will drive the outcome. In the time period since Mallow's trading at Corel, their population has become quite dependent on the new convenient technology. And while a real war may convince Corellians to endure a little technological hardship, a trade embargo with no danger, but perpetual gnawing inconvenience will wear on the populace until the tolerance for war dwindles. As for Terminus, Mallow will use his riches to further the interests of those who support him and his industrial monopolies to economically cut off anyone in his way. In this way, Mallow turns Terminus's government into a plutocracy with the aim of pushing the foundation forward through strictly economic means. Okay, so Merchant Princes was actually published, remember these are short stories originally published in Astounding Science Fiction, and this was published in August of 1944. Now, that's an interesting little factoid. The reason that's interesting is that part four, The Traders, which we talked about on our last episode, The Traders was actually published two months later in October 1944. Interesting. It seems like part four, again, it does have that unique flavor. It's a little bit, I feel, less well thought out than some of the other parts. But it is. it feels like it's more cohesive than part five. So, you know, maybe I'm coming to the conclusion that Asimov just needs to do some more editing. Like, he needs more time to sit with things and then kind of get them out. Because sometimes if you get his, like, spread out thoughts, the story doesn't quite vibe like it's supposed to maybe i mean and i'm not sure i assume that it has something to do with just the development process of both of these stories i'm not sure how specifically but at any rate we're left with this part not being the last of the short stories that was actually finished but the second to last and so it's a weird thing, but it's what we've got as far as the the publication history. Do you know why he chose to put them in this order in the book? Um, I assume it's chronological. The publication order is not that thrown off. It's like a it's like a distance of about two months. So it just makes me wonder if both of these stories were in production. If he was in the process of writing them, and it just happened that Merchant Prince's developed a little bit faster, and it took him a little while longer to develop and finish off The Traders, which again, I'm not exactly sure why that would be. The Traders is so short, and The Merchant Princes is so long, so I don't know why it would be that it took him longer to finish up part, what would become part four. Well, maybe he kind of had it all together, and then he chopped off a chunk, and then... You know, that was the final piece, the traders. 
possible. Reading the book and it's, I kind of understand why Traders was first for us. I'm not sure about publication dates. It, it kind of makes sense to zoom in a little bit to see how um, trade started becoming the norm of transitioning from one kind of power to another, how foundation started yeah, um, yeah. spreading across the universe, or I'm sorry, the galaxy. It was kind of nice to zoom in a little bit and see like the nitty gritty of how foundation spread across right. the universe. And then I could see part five being like the the result of that. It makes sense to me when I read it that it would be small zoom in first and then zoom out. Absolutely. Second. And I will also say that we're kind of at a disadvantage here because we're talking about these as individual publications in astounding science fiction, but we don't actually have, I don't have those issues of astounding science fiction lying around so that I can read them. As we know, there are very likely little additions and little dashes that have been added here and there into these different stories as it was being brought together for a novel. Because the whole thing about a short story fix-up is you have to add those things throughout and kind of sew it together in order to give it the cohesion that it needs. So while I was going to say, I mean, one of the things about Merchant Prince is it helps to tie the cohesion of the story back up, at least just a little. After the lack or the loss of cohesion from part four, Merchant Princess kind of brings it back because it actually calls upon all of these little situations and things that were unfolding in part four. It mentions a scone and and so it, and it, it extrapolates that situation forward into the future. And um, but the thing is, is that I don't know whether it did that originally or whether that callback and that reclaiming of cohesion is a novel aspect of it. I can't tell. I'm pretty clueless but too. I guess let's let's just focus on it then as part of the novel. And in that sense, I think it does kind of help the book get back on track from what I feel is like a loss of of cohesion when you move from part 3 to 4. In part 4 you're just kind of like wondering like how does this connect a lot of times is what like we what we talked about in our last episode but merchant princes not only touches upon the things that were in part four so it kind of keeps the whole thing running together as a as a as a unity but it also has references to Harry selden selden crisis psycho history stuff that we hadn't been hearing about hardly at all during part four yeah it was nice to see that selden crises was kind of a part of history at this point, like an expectation for most characters. And so I, I want to talk a little bit more about how this is a section that I think has some strengths, but I also think it has some very distinct weaknesses. The first one, the first strength, I mean, I think that this section does actually have many dynamic and really genuinely entertaining moments, don't you think? Oh, yeah. What would you, I mean, as... As we think about those moments that really kind of hit home, which ones come to your mind? Oh, um, the Commodore and his palace, I thought was really, uh, I, I almost out loud laughed when I heard the, the Commodore describe himself as the most beloved man or a beloved ruler. And then you look around and there's just these giant steel walls right. defending him from the outer world. Right, that's a nice little I thing going on. Yeah, I got kind of like an Odyssey vibe from that whole scene. Yeah. You know, especially uh, with the Comdora. Uh, I just got this vibe of like, do you remember the myth of Circe? Like Odysseus landing on Circe's right, island? Yes. That's what that reminded me of. I do not know what you're talking about. Um, Basically, they land on the island of a, uh, of a witch and she turns them all into pigs. And then Odysseus, like, outsmarts her. But Odysseus always gets help from the gods, so I don't know if it counts as outsmarting. Well, unless you count the forces of psychohistory, that's the one, that's what takes the place of the gods in this story. Yeah, there you go. Okay, okay. I definitely need to yeah. read that story. Yeah, you should go back and read the Odyssey. It's classic. And, and for me, that scene uh, that takes place in that manufacturing facility where Mallow is kind of giving this demonstration, but he's not just giving the demonstration. He's kind of like taking in Intel, trying to figure out what's going on. That was a very dynamic scene that I was very entertained by. So 
I think the story has a lot of strong points to it and can be at times really quite gripping. But on the other hand, I just feel like in spite of those kind of exciting moments, the story just kind of wanders from one part to the next. And part five in itself, we talked about the trajectory from one part to the next and how that kind of does get tied up. But part five in itself, it just seems to lack a solid direction. I don't know, man. I kind of, I felt very differently. Like there was a lot and I could have used like maybe a couple more connecting sentences between paragraphs, but I, I actually really followed what Isaac Asimov was doing with scene to scene to scene. No, I mean, it was really cool watching Mallow get commissioned as a as a traitor to keep one eye open, like as a spy, but not as a spy. That was like, okay, this is cool. We're trying to find out who's being treasonous. Yeah. Um, and then he, we're just kind of watching him investigate and plot along um, the, the source, and he's, he's finding out answers on the way, too. And I, I actually was able to keep it up and I thought it was really, it made sense that, you know, we're going to go, we're going to act like traitors. Um, well, while we're acting like traitors, this crazy wizard of, <laughs> wizard of a priest shows up, and I'll deal with this in my own way. Um, and then now that we're dealing it with it that way, we're going to go find out the Commodore now that I can have my way, in, my way in with him. And now that the Commodore's telling me that they've got remnants of the empire with them i'm going to go find out what i can about the empire now that i have found out what i can with the empire it kind of all ties together at the end i was i was following along pretty well what he was doing i i I, like i said a few more sentences connecting why he chose suena um i think that could have been a little bit more helpful like we get to suena and now all of a sudden we're treating mallow like uh an unknown figure for half a paragraph for no reason and then we're back to malo just being malo i'm like eh. jacob i want you to uh, repeat something that we were talking about before we hit the record button you were talking about kind of the length of this part of the book yes um i think i think what would have helped me a little bit is if part five wasn't one part you know if if part five was like hey we have this master trader um, he's being sent on an investigative mission, but there's something kind of off about that mission. And then we end it right after maybe, maybe after the preach goes to the priest goes to the mob, we could have ended that part there. Right. And then at the next one, we could have picked up at the Commodore's palace. Like, Hey, sorry about all that about the, the crazy priest stuff. Thanks so much. And like linked those two that mm-hmm. way and continue the investigation of where is this star system getting atomic power from and what do they know what to do with it could have been three different parts i think instead of one major i completely agree although i think that for me the divisions might lie somewhere a little different like i see three distinct movements in this whole part and the first movement would be everything from the beginning kind of up to the discovery of those of those old imperial remnants you know like the blaster in the holster of the of the guard that has the imperial seal on it like yeah that would have been a great cliffhanger and then after that though after that he gets back to terminus and he's this rich guy all of a sudden because of all of his business dealings with Corel and several months have passed in between the this first movement and the second and that would also include kind of this trial that Hober Mallow is put on and it would kind of end at the place where he vindicates himself and and presents his evidence and there's this big reveal and then the third movement would have to do with him actually being in power on terminus and everything that has to do with the war that happens between the foundation and Corel it's like i feel like there are these very distinct chunks of the story and when i'm trying to read them all together and it doesn't feel like a single part it makes me wonder which parts am i supposed to be really caring about if i could have my way about it then all of those aspects of the story would kind of be running together and woven together into something that is more cohesive and not like okay we're going to talk about this 
And now we're going to talk about this. And now we're going to have this part of the story. It just felt, it felt disjointed in that way to me, especially because the biggest moment, the biggest climax of the story is when Mallow vindicates himself at his trial and he's on everyone's shoulders and he is, and, and they're saying long live Mallow and all this stuff. And then the story just kind of keeps going, you know, it's like, are we done yet? But it's not done yet. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I keep, you probably picked up this about my, you know, character, but I keep asking myself, you know, why are you telling me this? Like, I really, I'm a person who really wants to know the why. So that's important to me in a classroom. Like, why are we learning this thing? But it's also really important for me when I'm just enjoying stories. So I'm okay with a why that's really simple. Like, I'm telling you this so that you have this, you know, character established or this character development or because we're going here. But I really want to know, you know, why are you telling me these different parts of the story? And I keep feeling like Asimov has something in mind And it's there, but he hasn't just come out and said it yet. So I'm hoping as we kind of continue to follow the Foundation series, and as the universe kind of weaves itself together, we're going to get that kind of satisfying payoff. I have an analogy, actually. It's kind of like watching the first couple Marvel movies. Like, if you watch Captain America, there's like, the very first Captain America, there's like, lots of character intro and then you get a little climax and then he's dead but then he's alive again sorry spoilers uh but it's been out since like 2012 so it's fine but you also are like i feel like there's so much more story going on like i remember watching all those marvel movies in the theater and going really what's gonna happen next because it doesn't feel like the story's finished and then the payoff in infinity war and endgame is just so satisfying so that's where I'm hoping this is going, is the payoff. You're hoping for an end of the galaxy kind of thing? Well, or, I don't know, I just hope that there is some sort of payoff to all of this world building. Because right. I'm really interested in the world building, but I want to know where we're going with it. One other problem that I have with this section is that Mallow doesn't seem to really be that interesting of a character to me. I mean, he's interesting, but what I mean by this is I don't really feel like he grows very much nothing really happens to him he just feels like kind of flat to me although he's you know he's he's got this impressive stature to him uh he ends up being kind of uninteresting because he's just kind of one tone and his significance is much more about the change that he ultimately brings to the foundation not the person himself and so I find his character to be a lot less interesting than, say, for example, Salvor Hardin. Salvor Hardin was a much more dynamic character. And so Mallow just kind of leaves me feeling kind of meh about him. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. Uh, maybe now would be a good time to talk about the stereotypical Asimov characters that you kind of see. So usually there's at least there's one guy who is like smarter than everybody else. And he knows what's going on. He's got to figure it out and he's got a plan and he's going to kind of manipulate everybody else into following his plan. Um, Sometimes that guy is like also really physically strong, but there are also, you know, all sorts of other characters who are like naysayers. And then you've got a secondary character as well, who is usually the like down-to-earth, man's man, brute force, who's like, I don't know if your plan's gonna work, Mr. Smart Character, but I'll go along with you. That's what I've picked up. What kind of characters have you seen? No, that, that's what I've picked up. And, um, yeah, I think there's three characters. The one that's right. The one who is loyal to the one that's right. And the ones who are the naysayers who are always... They always yell. Everyone who's a naysayer is always a yelling. Well, even the encyclopedist board, the board of trustees, they were always yelling pretty much. Hmm. And they were the naysayers. With an optional fourth character of, you know, female. No, that's that's the same as naysayers, except quieter. (laughs) No, wait. Commodore yelled. (laughs) She yelled. Yeah. All right, so I have a bone to pick with Asimov about this book because there are no female characters. I mean, there is one girl that gets to gasp. She's just a serving girl. 
at, you know, wearing pretty things. Yes. And then there's the Comdora, who is just set up to be this stereotypical, like, shrew, which I'm not super pleased with. Um, but she could have such an interesting backstory. I mean, her father, I don't know who her father is. He's someone like rich and powerful and whatever. And she's younger. Yes. And she's younger than the Commodore, the Commodore, which could be really interesting. Like, how did she get put in this place? And doesn't she make some comment about, you know, women being political pieces? Yeah. She says at one point that like, this is probably the worst political marriage that's ever happened and i got stuck with the worst political man ever i could have found someone on my home world out of the slums who was better than you yeah i mean she could be such an interesting like jezebel takeover power behind the throne kind of character and he just doesn't explore that at all and we see this kind of weakness with asimov and female characters pretty frequently with pebble in the sky we have Ola, who was not a very strong character, she had a little bit more dynamism to her as far as her characterization and backstory, just a, just a tiny little bit. Um, and of course, she had much more territory in Pebble in the Sky than the Commodora has in Foundation. But she still wasn't a very strong character. I feel like, you know, the strongest character that we've had, the strongest female character that we've had from Asimov has been Susan Calvin so far. Yeah, and it's been such a letdown to not have more Susan Calvins because that was such an enjoyable feature of iRobot is her kind of struggle. Yeah, Yeah, I loved Susan Calvin. And I mean, if I give as much grace as possible to Asimov for Commodora, um, like if I'm if I just keep white knuckling it, I can tell myself, oh no no no, Commodora is so shrew like because she feels so lonely or used as a as a political figure instead of being a person. But well, like, yeah, never but actually, you gotta put that in the novel. You have yeah, to write it out. It's never actually put in the novel. Exactly. She just she is just shrew. And she never says anything that makes you say, oh, well, she's true because she feels X, Y, Z. She's just true. Yeah, it's just a flat portrayal of the character as well. You know, like Pola. Pola was a a flat character. Ironically, Asimov had noted, I believe it was in I, Asimov, one of his later biographies, where he talked about. I forgot that he did like four autobiographies. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I believe it was in I, Asimov, where he talked about the fact that he was never really that good with doing female. I should say he wasn't comfortable with creating female characters. And I think one of the things is that in his early days of reading and starting to write, one thing he noticed was that all the pulp magazines, all they ever did with female characters was make them some kind of object, like the damsel in distress, that kind of trope, and not really do anything much more with them. And so I, it was, it's weird, but I think what he said was that his response was to kind of shy away from female characters because he didn't want to just make them objects. And so I don't know if he thought like he didn't have the skill to develop female characters in a meaningful way or something. It's ironic, though, because it seems like a lot of times when he introduces a female character, it is like a damsel in distress or someone who is a flat and undeveloped character. So, yeah, I mean, I can respect his reasoning like, yeah, you know, it's good to move away from things that aren't helpful. But at the same time, you know, try and break the mold a little bit. Ask a woman for her opinion in writing your books. And listen. I know. I know. The last thing I want to talk about as far as Merchant Princess is concerned is that this story has so many marks of what we would consider a mystery story. Other parts of Foundation have it, but Merchant Princess, I think, has it the most strongly. We have an initial puzzle. We have moments where characters perform little actions that become clues, essentially, that you have to pay attention to because they're going to come back later. You have this main character who acts as the detective, essentially. Hober Mallow is kind of playing the role of the detective. 
And then you have a big reveal at the end. And obviously it's not quite the end. It's more like somewhere in the middle. Again, that kind of touches back on some of the issues that I have with the story. You have a big reveal where all the little clues are tied together. So I think that that is, is the closest we get in this book to a mystery story. And I mentioned that because Asimov is pretty big on mysteries as we've already seen, but I do see maybe a couple potential problems here. The first one, I guess my first question is, does this constitute an actually good mystery story? What I mean by that is, do do you guys read many mystery stories? No, I really dislike mystery. Okay. I watched a lot of Sherlock. Is that, I don't know. Does that count? I don't know. Uh, Maybe. (laughs) I didn't watch that show. The question is that I have here, is it intended, does Asimov intend that the reader could figure out the mystery on their own? That's one of the fun things about a mystery story is that you have to pay attention to all the clues and all the little character signals, and you try to put it together as you're reading it before the solution to the mystery is revealed. That's one of the fun things about the genre. The question is, is it intended on the one hand by Asimov so that the reader can figure it out? I I read through this section twice in prep for the episode. And the first time I just kind of, I was listening to it, audiobook, And the first time I listened through it and, and I had to, when the mystery was revealed, when the solution was revealed, I had to kind of think back and think to myself, do I remember hearing all of those things that Mallow brings up in his trial that he, that he references from earlier in the story? And I couldn't remember them. Like either I wasn't paying enough attention or it wasn't done well enough so that the connections were obvious enough for me to make. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't, all of the things that he revealed, it seemed like those were inaccessible to us. In my opinion, I'm kind of okay with a mystery that's not possible by the, by the audience until later. Right. Like it's like that we ended, was it part two? It's, it's obvious. It's obvious as all hell. (laughs) Um, line out of the book and like we didn't necessarily have of what what is it what's the obvious answer we didn't know i'm okay with that as long as the mystery does something else for the audience which is like it makes you wrestle with a bigger question or it makes you wrestle with um worldviews or a theme or a narrative or how you approach people or or things like that um which sherlock holmes does quite a lot um Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, there was a lot of things like if you if you read those books, they're not necessarily you're not going to get the answer until you read the end in, in every situation. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Um, but what he does is he makes you wrestle with bigger themes and wrestle with worldviews the whole time through and kind of enjoy that. And I can enjoy that. But yeah. I don't think Asimov did that in this book either. He kind of, I think we had the beginnings of one clue. And that was it, but that wasn't enough to actually answer it ourselves as an audience. So I'm like, okay, maybe that's not what he's doing. I don't know. Maybe it's just a personal thing, but I think it kind of annoys me when there's a big Asimov reveal and I couldn't see it coming because of one factor or another. Like there's a part of me personally that wants to be able to have figured it out. So maybe it's just pride. Maybe it's just pride on my part. I don't know. But I mean, when I listened to it the second time, I did kind of have the first pass in my brain and I was listening more closely and I did hear more clues. I did hear more things that ultimately would be hints at the end to kind of put the whole picture together. But if that is what Asimov was going for to actually be able to piece it together, does the reader have enough prior knowledge of the narrative universe, basically, and enough orientation to the universe to recognize the proper clues when they are needed. Here's an example. Jane Twer is supposed to be a traitor, and yet, and he was supposed to have a secular education at the foundation, and yet he doesn't know what a Selden crisis is. And if you go back and listen to their initial conversation about the Selden crisis, 
it comes off at first like, well, we just need some plot exposition because it's been a while since the audience reading astounding science fiction has heard it. But there's more going on because Twer's lack of knowledge becomes a clue against him that Mallow then uses later at the trial. And so the question is, is the reader supposed to know by now that if someone has a secular education through the foundation, they will 100% know what a Selden crisis is? That's the clue that the reader has to be able to pick up on. And if they can't, then that that tying together of, from clue to solution, it means less to the reader. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. I, I feel like in a mystery, you should... You should have clues sprinkled throughout, and then you get to the end and you go, oh, of course, I should have been able to put that together. And I think in particularly good mysteries, you you get that sort of, I'm so dumb, like I should have known, but it's also really difficult on the first path to actually put those together, even if you're really paying attention. Like That's what makes a good mystery is, sure, the clues are there. But it's hard to pick out. But this is a, I think Asimov's attempt at mystery here is a different type of obscure. Um, I I think there's so much universe in his brain that we're not getting all of it on the page, <clears throat> which we would really need to be able to kind of follow along the story and kind of get to the end and go, oh, of course, of course, that's what it means. Yeah, kind of like he needs to have written more. Like, if he filled out the universe more, then maybe we could go, oh, how does he not know about a Selden crisis? Um, but I think you're right to say maybe he's got more universe in his head than he does on the page. I think that's really... And I'm astute. so used to one character knowing so much more than the other characters that instead of going, oh, that's weird. Why doesn't he know about a Selden crisis? I went, oh, well, that makes sense because everybody's dumb except for the main character. And right now the main character is this other guy. Yes, excellent point. The char- the way that the characters are kind of typologically cast in their roles throughout the book, it makes it harder for you to catch what Hober Mallow catches. Yeah, they're not equals. They're not both in this mystery on the same footing. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, I almost felt like it was unfair to expect me to see that coming. Like, you haven't set me up to think any other way other than this one is smart and this one is not. Yeah. I shouldn't be expected to think differently when that hasn't been the norm so far. And there's one other thing I want to talk about when it comes to mystery here. And that is something else that I think touches upon what we were talking about earlier of the different parts of this story and what I feel like is kind of a disjointed sort of feel within this part. And it just, for me, it really boils down to a genre issue. We're reading a mystery story for a while, okay? And when you're reading a mystery story, there are certain things that you're looking for, certain things that are conventions of the genre that help you know what you're supposed to be, how you're supposed to be thinking about it. And then the suddenly the mystery ends, and there's the big reveal at the end, and it seems like the story has reached its climax. But then, again, the story just kind of keeps on going, and we're no longer reading a mystery anymore. And so I talked about how the story just kind of keeps on going after what I felt like was a climactic point. And I think what accentuates that feeling to me is that suddenly the genre is no longer the same. We're no longer reading a mystery story. Now we're just reading another part of Foundation and talking about the Selden crisis. And and so and the mystery is not important anymore. And so that's why I think this part kind of suffers in my mind, because it just it it switches gears too early for me. If it's going to be a mystery, make it a mystery up until the end. Hello everyone and welcome to Discussing Trek. I'm your host Clarence and I wanted to introduce you to the podcast. Discussing Trek is all about keeping you informed on the latest news and episode reviews in the Star Trek universe, while also staying engaged with our community of listeners. So be sure to hit that subscribe button for weekly content and stay locked in to DiscussingTrek.com for more information. Until next time guys, live long and prosper. 
So as far as worldview stuff goes, there's really not a lot of content Agreed. in this last section. Um, I just want to touch on a couple of things. Um, but first, I have a prediction for where this is going, because I already talked about there's a why. I'm looking for a why, like why you're telling me all this. So I'm kind of getting the sense, getting some clues that the foundation is going to be the new empire. That's my thinking. Like, that's why they had to be set apart. It's because they're going to be the new galactic empire. Seems logical to me. I mean, the whole thing that Selden was saying is that the foundation is going to preserve knowledge and trade and that it will be the nucleus of, of what's to come, you know, that the thousand years will pass and that a greater and better empire will take the place of the old. So it makes sense that the foundation is the seed of that. Yeah, it seems like power is slowly creeping out. They're slowly taking over. Yeah, the four kingdoms are no longer the four kingdoms, are they? Now it's just yeah. foundation no. territory. Yes. So don't tell me if I'm right, Jason. I'm not telling you anything. I mean, I'm, I'm just excited. saying like by the by the beginning of the trade um by the beginning of the merchant princes, they're no they're no longer referred to as the four kingdoms. They're the former four kingdoms. And so there's expansion going on. It was yeah. expansion that took place at first through the foundation's religious system, kind of their religio-technological advance. And but now it's not really working anymore, is it? Yeah, that actually brings me to the first like worldview uh, kind of discussion, which is, you know, this whole idea of religion as as power has kind of become entrenched in their society. Um, and Asimov has this thing about, I think it's come up in other places, I'm not sure. But once things get entrenched... Maybe it's just a theme throughout the whole Foundation novel. Once things get entrenched, they kind of start to lose their value, right. which is interesting. It's an interesting thought. Well, it seems like uh, the point is, for different seasons of history, there are different, I, I guess, highest strength motivators, like religion or politics or uh, trade. Yeah, so it's interesting that that religion has just become entrenched, that the tradition is now tying people up. So I wonder I wonder if Asimov is kind of, you know, poking at ideas of tradition and, and longstanding things here. And he kind of does it, I think, throughout the novel, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, yeah. Because the encyclopedists, their role was a very artificial one, really artificially kind of crafted by Selden. And within 50 years, it was clear that their system was no longer viable. And so Hardin's innovation leads to the religious system that is kind of down underneath the trade system. And so several years go by after that. And now suddenly the religious system is no longer what is effective around them regionally because people have kind of grown resistant to it and 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 they have to move on to a to something that is more strictly about trade absolutely and and then you have to wonder like is that one going to kind of grow stale too you have to innovate again and i think it just gets back to this idea that for for asimov what he's presenting are these psych psycho historical levers that can be pulled to kind of manipulate societies and civilizations and steer them one way or another. And so when we're talking about the overall worldview, maybe he is saying that these things can work in certain situations for a certain time, but all of them will eventually grow stale and all of them will eventually be kind of tossed aside in favor of the next effective thing that moves a, a society the way that it will move. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with you. I And I'm wondering at this point if we're going to come back around in the next couple novels and say, all right, well, maybe let's try... Let's let's try this political power again or let's try this religious power again and and see if we can use those levers a second time. Because, you know, in my experience, 
things like that tend to be cyclical mm. rather than, you know, once and done. So yeah. I'll be interested to see where he goes with this whole uh, keeping power over the countries around us kind of kind of theme. I do want to bring up, okay, first of all, I love that the solution to this Selden crisis is to do nothing. I think that that's great. I think, you know, Asimov has got us primed to um, to wait for this big reveal and this big solution because he tends to do that. And then he's like, oh, wait, but the solution is nothing. I didn't like that at all. I I thought it was uh, a good move. I wanted something. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, I wanted something more exciting. Like when it got down to it, I thought it was actually very well reasoned, you know, ultimately. And, and, and it's kind of, it's not all that different from Salvor Hardin's avoiding of violence and avoiding of war through, through economic forces. It's not really all that different, but for some reason, I was just hoping that it would be something a little bit more dynamic, not war, but something. Oh, that's, I think that feeling though of like, oh, but we wanted something is exactly why it was such a brilliant move. Yeah, I think, I think what he did there was like, we were expecting something to come, but Malo knew that he had already, he had already done it. He had finished it. Like there was three years of um, stalemate war, but he already knew that, nope. I, the big reveal is I did the big reveal years ago and you guys are just catching up back to your worldview thing. It kind of talks to the corporate power of like, you know what? No, we were planning ahead for these things and you guys are just starting to see it. It kind of makes me wonder how powerful corporations are today. Or, I mean, this also can be somewhat reminiscent of, of politics where sometimes the solution that a political party will reach for, like, in terms of like local governments or federal governments, sometimes the solution is just to stall and the yeah. stall becomes the way for that political party to get what it wants. Yeah, which is interesting because Malo is also criticizing the whole entrenched religion thing um, and saying, you know, it's just it's it's lost its luster. It's just and he doesn't believe it. Um, yeah, yeah. But you're not going to do anything either. So why change? Yeah. And I don't know. Again, maybe that's why the end of the story just kind of confused my story arc sensibilities. Well, if you have a worldview that says religion has no purpose, which, you know, the point of religion is typically to have to explain the purpose. Um, if, if the purpose giving thing no longer has purpose, it makes sense then that Malo and the way he concludes is. I don't have to worry about what happens after me. I'm just going to live out my merchant prince years and it's going to be great. Um, it's very self-centered and without a worldview that tells you otherwise, you can't expect him to behave otherwise. I do feel as though his kind of authoritarian rule that he kind of takes up for me kind of comes a little bit out of nowhere. Like suddenly he's in this position of power where he effectively takes on the mayoralty and the high priesthood. Like he kind of combines them into one thing and then uses his riches and his money to make sure that either his political ends will be, will be furthered or that anyone who argues against him will suffer financial hardship and not be able to have success politically. And that is what prompts his allies to say, well, you, you're making a plutocracy here. You know, yeah. this is not like the kind of, this is not the terminus that we started out with, you know, with municipal government and Salvor Hardin as mayor. It, it, it's a very different environment that we're leaving terminus with in this book than what we began. So it's interesting to consider what Asimov might be saying, not just about the transition from one kind of power to another kind of power, from one kind of force as power to another kind of force as power, but also what he might be saying about authoritarianism. And I don't know what he's saying about it, but it just, it's a weird ending to me. Yeah, that's actually the last thing that I want to talk about is this idea that uh, Herbert Mallow uses the mob rule to kind of 
put himself in power. I think he uses the word demagoguery at some point, which is really interesting. We start on Terminus with, you know, the scientists are in charge and they're making this encyclopedia and then, oh, we have families spring up. So we got to take into account we have to take care of these families and actually have some sort of political rule that makes sense. And then we go through making a religion and really establishing a civilization. So we're not just a specialty group now. Now we're a full civilization. And then now you've got this kind of mob rule with a demagogue in charge. And it all, you almost get the sense that the foundation itself has kind of gone into a moral or a civilized recession. You know where I'm getting at? Where yeah. it's going the way of the four kingdoms. And it's so weird because Selden's vision is that of a, of a better, more benevolent empire that will rise up. And as we hit the end of the book, I just, I'm looking for the seeds of it. And I'm not feeling optimistic. Well, and that's why I think that this new empire and it being an empire with an emperor with all of the, mm, I guess there might be benefits, but with all of the kind of things that go along with having an emperor, that's, that's why I think it's coming out of the foundation is this move into some mob rule with one strong figure at the head. All because Selden says it'll be more benevolent does not mean that it's completely benevolent i guess i mean apparently the the empire of old was really messed up um so anything anything is better than that might be one of the takeaways i suppose well, that's kind of downer to end a podcast on but well you know, i mean what you gonna do? well let's hold off on the downer then and see if we can kind of push the downer back and just share some of our final thoughts on foundation as a whole we've hit the end of the book and I just want to know if there are thoughts that you have about whether you thought the book was overall good. You know, is it a quality novel to you? Do you feel like it holds up? All of those kinds of things. Let's sum up our thoughts. I I had a lot of parts that were enjoyable. There was there was dialogue at the beginning of the book that I really liked following. I liked listening in on uh, the development of of political systems. I liked being in the back rooms where deals are made. I like, I liked seeing how, uh, intrigue and spaceships and star travel and, and trade works on such a galactic scale. I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed a lot of the parts. Uh, I definitely got the feeling of a short story fix up. And you know what? I think I would have profoundly enjoyed this, store this whole book more if it was one universe but completely separated people and ideas like if it all wasn't on one planet foundation you know i think i would have just limitlessly loved it but the the weird connections of trying to make worldviews happen like watching history get made is really cool and in another way it's kind of i can feel all the the missing parts because it is one history i I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the first three sections of the book. I thought they were well put together. And then the second two, I felt were more, they were more confusing. So it didn't feel like a really satisfying end to the book. But overall, now that we've kind of talked about it and, and gone through it, I, th I think the development of the foundation itself is an interesting thing that got explored in this book because we kind of went from almost like a Star Trek kind of episode in the first couple sections into like a court intrigue in this in the last two sections. So I thought that that was a really interesting arc and development given the surrounding kingdoms who are kind of falling into disarray. I feel like I agree with you, Stephanie, about the parts. One through three are definitely absolute gold to me. But I feel like part four and part five, I feel like the story starts to kind of lose it for me. Not that all the interesting stuff about part four and five is no longer interesting to me, but I just felt like 
it was so dynamic in those first three parts. And then I just wonder what happened in the, in the, in the, in the other two. Individually, they have some interesting things to say. But you know, Jacob, you mentioned the short story fix-up feel. And it's so ironic because the other short story fix-up that we've dealt with is iRobot. And even though iRobot's stories are even more disjointed, I feel like iRobot has to it something which is generally a much better cohesive message to it by the end. I think what makes it more cohesive is that there is one message or not one message, but like a message. Yeah. And we have a, and we have a working frame for it. Right. Like an iRobot, we have, yeah, maybe different characters. Yeah. Maybe different situations. Yeah. Maybe different um, contexts, but they all have this. Let's wrestle with a big question. Um, let's wrestle with this today, you know, mm-hmm. Um, let's see how people interact with one another in this tension. Whereas with foundations fix up, like we kind of got that for the first three books and then it just, okay, let's watch people be smart for part four and let's watch people be smart again. Part five. Yeah. That was it. You were saying like all of the iRobots stories ask some big question that is quite clear. And then the genius of iRobot is that all of those big questions and all those stories, they all tie together into one larger question, I think, that spans the whole novel that has to do with what does it mean for humanity to be the way that it is? Um, and, and that whole thrust of this transition between robots who are subservient to humanity that is subservient to the robots. And yeah. I don't feel like Foundation is saying something like that. I mean, I guess I should say, I don't feel like Foundation as strongly and cohesively says one thing. At I, least I totally agree. At least I don't sense it. I maybe I'm missing it, but I just don't well, feel like it's it's hitting that same strong note yeah i feel like i have half of the puzzle and i need the other half of the puzzle in order to kind of get the whole thing i think there's an attempt at asking the very large question of how does history get made and within that question there's the question of legacy um truth told lies told power but it, it it's it's, yeah, it feels like he lost focus for the last two books, for sure, and it wasn't really well established in the first books. So I, I'm giving, I'm being quite gracious when I say maybe he's dealing with this question of how do you make history, which is, I think, a profound question. But I don't think it was established well enough to say that's true, when it, and it wasn't held up to the end enough to say it was true. And I will so. still say that the book is still awesome. Um, it has the classic status that it has for several reasons. I do think that its its opening offerings of its opening three parts are the ones that are best remembered, and its strengths. A lot of those strengths lie within the strength of that story arc, and it is also well known and beloved because of how influential it has been and how many people it's influenced. And so there are a lot of reasons to for this book to be cherished and not just to say like, oh, well, it wasn't as good as iRobot. But, you know, still, I, I feel like when looking at it, it does kind of have some, some issues. Another reason that it is so cherished and beloved is also that a lot of people don't just think about it in terms of the first book. A lot of people think about it in terms of the first three. Because those together form what for decades was called the Foundation Trilogy before any more Foundation books were written. And so you mentioned feeling like you only have half of the puzzle and you need the other half of the puzzle. And to a certain extent, we'll get a bigger picture to come when we get into the second and then the third volumes, the second and third installments of the series. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Asimov does in the next couple novels. Um, And I do want to give him credit 
for his work because it does seem like he is the first one to kind of carve out some of these things. And then other people are able to see what he's carved out and take them and make them into something that's maybe a little more cohesive, maybe a little bit bigger, a little bit more more digestible. But Asimov is the first one, and so many people have benefited from him doing that. Like Star Trek and Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, great. I'm super happy that we got to go through this one and uh, that we had such a cool conversation about it stretching over five episodes. I wasn't really sure how long this was going to go, but I think it was really worth it to pull it out and do one part as as one episode each. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So that wraps it up for today, I believe. We are going to do some soul searching, I guess, and try to decide which book we're going to do next. It might be The Stars Like Dust, which was the second written installment in the Galactic Empire trilogy. Or we're kind of, I'm kind of toying around with the idea of maybe going and jumping back into the robot series and doing the Caves of Steel, which, which um, at this point, I've said before that we are doing these in the order that they were, that they were published. Already, we've kind of seen how that whole construct kind of fails because we're dealing with parts that were written at different times and then published together as books at different times. And so I think the main point is that even if we skip around just a little bit, especially in these very early novels, we're not going to be too thrown off because these are still very much like separate kind of storylines. And even though there are some some connection points here, it's not like if we don't go in publication order that something is going to be missed that we should have read about in some previous book. Not yet, anyway. Yeah, no spoilers, even if you want to get in contact with us. <laughs> Great segue. That's right. You can get in contact with us in a lot of different ways. Yeah, you can send us an email at contact at galaxypodcast.com. You can leave a comment or a message on our Facebook at Galaxy Podcast. And as always, you can head to our website, galaxypodcast.com. At galaxypodcast.com, you can find all of our episodes to stream for free if you haven't listened to them yet. And also along the side of our landing page, you'll find plenty of subscribe badges. You can click to and they'll take you right to your favorite podcasting app of choice. And you can subscribe there so you wouldn't miss an episode. So we want to thank you for having joined us through our discussions on Foundation, and we hope that you'll come back and join us for our discussions on our next Isaac Asimov novel. Thanks again, and until next time, I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. And this has been Galaxy. <laughs>